Welcome to Forever White Belt. I'm your host, Adolfo Ferranda. Today on the show, I have 10th Planet Decatur Black Belt, Matt Scaff. Matt is a black belt under Brandon McCaffrey. Matt also hosts his own fantastic podcast called The Grappling Discourse. In this episode, we discuss several interesting items, such as when being an instructor is not for you, what is a jiu-jitsu coach versus an instructor, when to seek a coach, what it takes to be a coach, private lessons versus coaching, how to optimize private lessons, learning styles, the benefits of rolling with the opposite sex, and much more. Okay, one housekeeping note here. In the episode, we make reference to a Lindsay. We are referring to Lindsay McCaffrey, co-owner of 10th Planet Decatur. Just a reminder to please give us a five-star review on iTunes and Spotify and share this podcast with a friend. It really helps us out. Consider becoming a patron, leave us feedback, and suggestions on how we can improve the show at anchor.fm forward slash foreverwhitebelt. Like us on Facebook and TikTok at Forever White Belt, and check us out on Instagram at Forever White Belt Show. Go buy your Forever White Belt swag at teespring.com forward slash forever-white-belt. If you ever get to beautiful Northern California, please come roll with us at North Bay Jiu-Jitsu in the city of Novato. They're amazing instructors and everyone there are great people. They offer judo, kickboxing, wrestling, and more. Mention the podcast and get two weeks free. And with that, I give you Matt Scaff. Welcome to the show, Mr. Scaff. It is a pleasure to be here. I'm uh, looking forward to talking to you and uh, yeah, looking forward to it. I got to tell you, man, I am a huge fan. You heard it in intro. Matt runs one of my favorite jujitsu podcasts, definitely in the top five, the Grappling Discord podcast. And you are currently at Decatur, Alabama, Ted Planet there. You're one of the founding members of the academy, correct? Yeah, I was uh, Brandon's first black belt here, and I've been a part of 10th Planet Decatur for almost 11 years now. One of my favorite episodes of yours was an episode on uh, quitting instructing. You were an instructor at 10th Planet Decatur for quite some time, and you're transitioning to another role now. Can we talk about that a bit? Yeah, so our gym has grown considerably over the years. When I first started training with Brandon, um, I had been training a year at a prior gym. And when I first started training with him, I mean, there'd maybe be four to six people in class. Nobody, right? And... Since then, I mean, the school has exploded and we have a bunch of different instructors. Me and Brandon were the main two instructors. You know, I would teach half the days, he would teach half the days. And honestly, over the past probably two years, I just, I really haven't enjoyed teaching a class. Something I talk about a lot is the difference between instructing and coaching. I don't really enjoy the instruction side of jujitsu. And I really don't like teaching like beginners. I don't really like teaching kids. I will but it's not something I'm passionate about. I've always really enjoyed the one-on-one or small group training with athletes, people that are really looking to go out there and compete and test their skills out on the competition scene. And so as of a couple of months ago, I've you know, backed away. And like I said, you know, we're really lucky to have a stable of, of really good instructors here. We've got a lot of purple and brown belts um, and even a few black belts now that are, we're more than ready, you know, to really wanting to jump in as an instructor. Um, like I said, as of a couple of months ago, I've really just been focused on the coaching aspect. And so um, really spending a lot of time with the athletes here. And we have uh, a handful of them that, that are really doing some special things. And, and it's really ignited energy in me. You know, whenever I think you're doing something you're not exactly passionate about, right? As much as I love jujitsu, instructing wasn't something I was passionate about. So making this shift has, has really ignited a spark in me again. And I've been really, really uh, enjoying this new journey that I'm on. Just so that people can understand, can you clarify and define instruction versus coaching? Yeah. So I think anybody can be your instructor, right? So for instance, we just look at BJJ fanatics. There's a bazillion DVDs or instructionals. I guess I shouldn't say DVDs anymore. Instructionals that you can buy. I don't know why. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) Gen Z says DVDs. (laughs) Well, there's a million instructionals you can buy and any of those guys can be your instructor. And one thing I think that's really cool about that is that you can learn from anybody, especially in today's world, right? And instructors, anybody, whether you're going to a seminar or you're taking a class, it's not really, to me, a special relationship. It's somebody, again, there's been a lot of people that have instructed me that I've never even met and that I've learned a lot from. 
think a lot of people, especially over the past couple of years, have a lot to, you know, give a lot of credit to their success to John Donahue or Eddie Bravo. I mean, those are just two guys that constantly have come out with some of the best material or their students have, and we've all learned from. Well, a coach to me is a, it's a much more special relationship. Not everybody's going to be your coach is, is the thing I tell people is that it's a relationship. You don't really, again, to be an instructor, you show up to a guy's class, you don't need a relationship there. You're just there to get the information. A coach, there's a lot more that goes into it from just trusting that they're guiding you in the right direction to the developmental side of things, to the planning process of the competitions. The coach is much more involved in the day-to-day of an athlete's life. And so I tell people all the time, those are two distinctively different roles. You got your instructor over here, and then you've got a coach over here. And now you can be both a coach and an instructor, but I think to do it at the highest level, you really find that, you know, you tend to go one way or the other. So like Brandon, he doesn't like coaching. He doesn't like working with people one-on-one. He doesn't like the planning. He likes teaching. He likes instructing. You know, if he could instruct a hundred people every single day, that's what he would do. Where I'm the opposite. I don't really want to work with a hundred people. I want to work with a couple. I want to see and help them reach the goals that they've set. That's interesting because typically it's the other way around in that when I talk to students, typically they're, uh, especially white belts and stuff like they always have dreams of opening their academy one day and becoming an instructor and becoming that leadership figure for giant classes that they envision. And rarely, if ever, have I ever heard anyone admit that they want to go into like this coaching role. I think yours was one of the first publicly stated admissions of that type of thing. So it's it's a different type of route. And what did that transition look like after so many years of instruction? Um, so I'll step back and say that I think a reason a lot of people don't say the coaching lane they want to be instructors because there's very few actual coaches in jujitsu and most guys didn't have a coach coming up. I mean, they had an instructor, somebody they were learning from, but again, they didn't have somebody that was watching their roles that Mm -hmm. was planning their development. You know, again, they had somebody that was teaching them, but it wasn't as personal as a coach would be. And John Donner here, you know, if you listen to Gordon Ryan, right, he always credits like, why are you so successful? And he's like, it's John Donner. It's John Donner here. You know, and you hear a lot of guys say that because John Donner here was really the first coach. I mean, and the guy, there's a huge advantage to him not being able to roll. It's that he's getting to watch his students roll. So there's never that temptation that he's going to go, mm, you know, because I think a lot of instructors, I mean, they want to train with their students, but they don't want to watch them roll for an hour. Most guys don't do that. And that's the the big thing, I think, that has really helped with those guys, you know, when they have the Donahue Desk Squad. And I know they split off now, but to me, that was the secret weapon for those guys mm-hmm. because nobody else really had that. Most of the time, most guys I know, when they go to competition, um, especially like if you're talking about jujitsu, you know, especially if it's a big competition, they're flying to wherever, the Northeast, California, Florida, wherever it may be. And they're going by themselves. They're going with a teammate, but they don't have somebody in their corner. That's their coach. Very, very few guys have that. And Donner here, you know, he would go to all the big events. He would go to the EBIs, the ADCCs, and he's giving them the instruction. He's there as the calming voice. He's there to provide them direction. And I've always thought, again, like how much of a cheat code that is. Not necessarily his mind. Obviously, he's a genius. But just having somebody there to direct athletes is something that's before Donna here. I mean, that just that wasn't a thing. Yeah, we're starting to see that now. Do you think that has to do with jujitsu being in the leather helmet stage? You know, we're still, it feels like this is still in the early stages where you see something like baseball and they have a pitching coach or they have a batting coach or (laughs) in various other sports, they have these type of disciplines. Do Do you think there's some sort of relationship there? I definitely, it's funny you say that because I was at my nephew's baseball game. He's five years old. And even there, I mean, they've got five coaches. They've got Mm. somebody on first and third, you know, telling them the kids, you know, I mean, the first, just a first baseman coach all the way up to the major league baseball. And they still have a first base coach and a third base coach. Their sole job is to direct the runners, give Mm -hmm. the runners the best advice they can give them in the game. And if those guys make a big mistake, I mean, it could cost them a game. I mean, it could go so far as to cost them a chance like a World Series. And so coaching is very, very important. And it's definitely the leather helmet days of jujitsu where I think we're going to see more and more. I mean, now we're starting to see more and more coaches. I mean, the guys at AOJ, Art of Jiu-Jitsu. I mean, we're seeing Guy Mendez. He's truly turning into a master coach. There's some other guys out there. But yeah, I think I 
think the that's going to be something we start to see is that no, like the professional athletes are also the one with the best professional coaches, just like an MMA. I mean, you've got to have a good, solid coach to truly hit your peak potential in jujitsu. Hypothetically, I'm an instructor at an academy. I've been there for a few years. I start feeling that loss of passion as you speak and and start thinking that uh, coaching is the way I want to go. Under your experience, how does that conversation go? And what are indicators that it's time to make that leap? That's a good question because I have been teaching since Blue Belt in Alabama, where I'm from. When I started, there was only one black belt in the state. When I first started training with Brandon, like I said, I I was a year into the game, but he had just gotten his purple belt and I got my blue belt shortly after. And Brandon had a significant injury in his neck and he had to sit out. And so that's when I first started teaching. It just, you know, I was always around. I was one of the senior students already at blue belt. And so I started teaching and I was teaching private lessons at blue belt. And like I said, until recently, you know, I, I was teaching. And to be honest, I think the the hardest thing to do is to make a change, you know, to go and do something different than what you were doing previously, because we fall into these routines. And I felt this weight on me that I just, I wasn't happy. And I could see that particularly when I, you know, just looked at what other people, like when they taught the joy, like for instance, Brandon had, like he just goes and he always has high energy because he wants to be there. And we had a couple of other guys teaching our MMA coach, our wrestling coach, the guys here, you know, they just, they were always there. And I I just felt like uh, my energy and my passion was lackluster. And I didn't feel like I was delivering the material or the instruction that I knew I was capable of just due to kind of being burnt out. And the first thing I did was just communicate honestly. I let my students know that, hey, I was going to be stepping back and that I was going to be taking, you know, somewhat of a sabbatical. You know, maybe it's a year, maybe it's forever. I don't know. But I communicated honestly with them. And then obviously, you know, I talked to Brandon and a couple of the other higher ups here, you know, because I got to get my classes filled. You know, I just had to find somebody and I told them that I wanted to start focusing. So while I gave up my classes, I had already been doing small group classes, like two or three, getting like two or three competitors to come in the gym at a time to work on their skills. And I was just seeing um, Nakia Jackson, who you know is one of our star athletes coming up. I mean, she she's amazing, and she you know, has already been in, involved with multiple EBIs. I guess the female version of EBI, which is Medusa, Medusa. and she got yeah. second place at this previous Medusa. And congratulations! You know, we had been wor- yeah, and we'd been working together for really been working together on a day to day basis for the past year. Mm-hmm. And I just saw how much like how much we accomplished just from those sessions, and I just knew I wanted. To do that more. And then I think that's where, because I, I realized, I guess, that I wasn't providing the same level of like I, I could get Nakaya way better in that small session than I could, you know, 50 people coming to my class on a Monday night. That makes sense. Like yeah. guys would come in and, you know, the development was much slower there. You know, most of those guys are hobbyists. They're coming in and, you know, they, they work and they've got a wife and kid and sure. they're there. You know, they're there to learn jujitsu mm-hmm. and to get good at jujitsu, but they're not there to master jujitsu or make it the main focus of their life. And so I just knew that I could spend time with the people that their main focus was to make this a profession and the results I could get. So, you know, if I teach for a year, multiple times a week, and I get the same guys, you know, they might get 10% better over the course of the year, which is pretty good. That's good returns. Mm-hmm. You know, maybe at most 20% better. But I felt like with the athletes that I was working with one on one or in small groups, I mean, we could completely change their game in six months. I mean, they mm-hmm. could be a whole nother level of grappler. And it just that really excited me. And the results that I, I, we've been getting with some of those athletes has uh, been remarkable. It's mm-hmm. been the best thing. And Brandon, you know, um, so at our gym, Brandon does the social media, he does the advertising, and he's the head instructor. I deal with the signups. I deal with all new people coming in and I deal with some of the day-to-day things, but now I'm the coach. And then Lindsay, his wife, she's kind of the, definitely the day-to-day stuff. She's the one that keeps everything organized. She deals with all the money and everything. So that's kind of how we split the mm. roles up at okay. Planet Decatur. And so I still have other roles, but now coaching is, has become a big one. And uh, it's definitely made our gym much, much better um, already over the past couple of months. Yeah, I definitely want to talk to you about Nakaya and Travis and any other clients you're working with. But just to clarify, 
a little more and may backtrack a bit too as well. Let's talk about the difference between coaching and privates. Mm. Um, can you clarify those for the listeners? Yeah. So private lessons are a topic that a lot of people ask about. And I, and I think a lot of times, like there's two people that want to do private lessons. Well, more than that, probably. There's probably three types of people that really want to do private lessons. One, people that are insecure about going into the class settings. If somebody's brand new, you know, and they just, they don't want to waste anybody's time. So they go, hey, is there any way I can just do private lessons? I'm not ready for class yet. Second type of person, you know, you've got the people that have been training and they have time constraints. And so they're having a hard time making it. Maybe all of a sudden they've agreed to, you know, head coach their son's uh, baseball team or their daughter's got gymnastics on Tuesdays and Thursdays now and they can't make it. So they're wanting to supplement that class time with some more direct one-on-one. Then you have the people that are really like trying to get good and they recognize the deficiency in their game and they're wanting to, you know, some help on it. So they go, Hey, and those are the people that I like to work with the best when it comes to private lessons. I always tell people, if you come to me and you want a private lesson and you just go, well, you decide, what do you think I should work on? I don't want to work with you, you know, because I don't know. To me, I don't want to take your money. This could be a complete waste of an hour. The people that get the best results from private lessons come in with direct questions. They come in knowing the area that they need to work on. I always, if I'm going to do a private lesson with a student here, now if somebody's coming from out of town and they want to do a private lesson, that's a little bit different. You know, usually they're wanting to spend an hour with you. They're wanting to see the best part of your game. That's it's a little bit different. But I'm talking about if they're a student at your school, you know, they should know what you're good at and they should know the deficiencies. Uh, you know, like a deficiency in their game that they're looking to get better at. And something I do is I always watch at least 15 minutes of rolling them rolling with another student before I give the lesson mm. because I want to see, you know, that deficiency during the role. So they might say, Hey, I'm having a tough time, uh, you know, passing the butterfly guard. Well, I want to get them out there and I want to see them what it looks like against multiple different levels of competition, you know? So if it's a blue belt wanting to, I want to see what they do against an experienced white belt, what they do against a blue belt, their skill, and then against somebody much better than them, like we'll say a purple belt. And to me, um, that's the only way to do private lessons. I know a lot of guys that kind of mail, you know, instructors that mail in private lessons. They just, I'm going to show you this random move I've been working on, you know? And Mm -hmm. to me, I I don't know, I've never felt comfortable taking money from somebody if I knew I couldn't deliver. And if I take money from you, I want to deliver and and make that experience uh, game changing for you. Mm -hmm. And so anytime I tell, talk to people about private lessons is, you know, that's the thing I tell them is like, you need to come in with direct questions that are going to let that instructor know where you want to get better and what your weaknesses are. You know, So again, if it's, hey, I can't pass the butterfly guard, the more you can answer, um, or excuse me, the more you can kind of pinpoint, well, what is it about the butterfly guard? Are you getting constantly elevated? Or are you getting butterfly swept? Or are you getting snapped down into guillotines? What is it? What is it about the butterfly guard? And the more questions you can ask, the better the answers the instructor is going to give you. And that's going to provide much, much, much quicker results. And I think that's what we're all looking for. And coaching then? Yeah. So coaching, um, so a private session with a coach is completely different because you know the athletes. Like I said, it's a, it's a very personal relationship. So if we just take Nakaya, I mean, I, I mean, I've watched Nakaya roll a thousand rounds over the past year. I watched her roll today, you know, and I know exactly her strengths, her weaknesses. I know what she needs to work on. I know the areas that she's improving in right now. And I know some of the areas that even just areas that I want her to stay away from because I don't want her game, you know, like it's just, there's no point in her adding that skill. You know, you just know everything. So I know, for instance, um, you know, Nakaya is an incredibly strong passer on top. She's been working her footwork a lot, but she still has a need to get quicker feet. You know, her feet sometimes get a little heavy, especially when she gets tired, just those type of things. And so I'm coming in, I don't care what Nakai has to say, no offense, you know, but like, you know, I'm going to take suggestions, but at the same time, I know day to day what she needs to be working on because I'm there. I see it and she trusts me. So whatever I tell her to work on, she works on. And that's the big difference is as a private lesson, somebody's coming, I don't know, you know, especially somebody's coming from out of town, or maybe again, it's just a, you know, blue belt that that trains twice a week at our gym. I don't know their game as detailed as I know Nakaya's. And so I do need that direction. I do need some guidance on how I can best help them. But with Nakaya, I don't need that. Are you looking at things like uh, strength and conditioning, recovery, sleep, nutrition, any of that stuff as well as a coach? 
Yeah, it's um, all that's very important. One of uh, the most important things you can do with your athletes is just ask them how they're feeling. How do you feel today? And you're always kind of gearing how hard the session's going to be based on that answer. Or, you know, today, for instance, you know, you'd mentioned Travis. Travis, Travis has been training super hard. And Travis's last name, real quick. So it's Travis Thomas. And Travis is, I mean, I've never seen an athlete like Travis come in to a jujitsu gym. Like he is truly, he's truly a prodigy. I've never, I've just never seen somebody with the the amount of talent that he has and how fast he is picking the game up. So I say that there's still a lot of areas though. Travis still has, he's only been training 15 months and he, he's uh, competed uh, so much, you know, he loves to compete. He's got a bunch of competitions coming up, but there's times, you know, like today, you know, just, Hey, let's just take today off. You know, you've trained six days in a row, your recovery. So we all have these whoop straps. You know, if you're watching, you can see that I have this whoop strap on and all of our athletes wear whoop straps. It's 29 bucks a month. And it just, it gives us a recovery score. It lets us know how much strain we put in, in a day. So it'll calculate how hard your workouts were. And then when you go to sleep, it'll track your heart rate variability, your resting heart rate, your how many breaths you're taking, uh, you know, when you're asleep, all this stuff. And it gives you a recovery score. And Travis, it was 30% this morning. And so he took today off and we'll come back at it tomorrow. It, that's, that's really important. I think as a coach that you're flexible and you make sure, like, I know everything these guys do. I know exactly what workouts they do. I know how much stretching they do. I know how much they lift, everything. At the same time, you got to know when it's time to, to tell somebody, hey, just let's take a day. Let's take two days. I always have my athletes um, take a week off every couple of months, you know, just take five days. That's a week for us. So just take five days and rest, let your mind, you know, come back fired up. And those are, uh, to me, those are the little things like that's super important. That's why you have to have a coach because most athletes, if they don't have that, they're always saying to themselves these thoughts of like, well, you know, my competition's working hard today. So I need to work hard today. It doesn't matter that they've trained, you know, 10 days in a row in their mind. That's still not enough, but I know, I know I see their development. I see, and I'm always very honest, like with the areas that they're improving and the areas that they need to work on. And when you have that relationship with them, again, they'll listen to you. So if you tell an athlete to take the day off, they'll take the day off and they won't worry about it. They won't. And that's something I wish I would have had coming up. I wish I would have had somebody that was constantly monitoring my workload, that was seeing my development, my progress, you know, seeing and pinpointing areas that I need to work at and just giving me advice and help so I could reach my best potential. So are you coming up with a weekly plan for the individuals that you're coaching? Does it vary on a daily level? And as you're approaching competition time, what does that look like? Yeah. So the biggest thing, you have to get your athletes healthy or get them to game day healthy. So if they have an event, so Travis has a blue belt tournament. So this will probably be his last blue belt tournament. He's been training 15 months. He got his blue belt after six months. And I'm anticipating from his development and his previous past couple of competitions, his last competition, he did a absolute tournament. He beat multiple brown and black belts in it. And he lost in the finals to a very, very talented black belt from Brazil. He lost a decision. It was a 15 minute decision. That's after 15 months of training. Right. And uh, it's yeah. just crazy. This, this kid's but, incredible. Yeah. Yeah. He, he's, he's a beast. And so he has a tournament this weekend in Jacksonville. It's a, I don't think they quite have 64 blue belts, but it's like 50 blue belts and the winner gets a couple thousand dollars. So it's Brian right. Brown's tournament down there. Travis has this big event Saturday. I'm giving him today off. There's really not much more we can do technically this week that's going to like make or break. The most important thing is that mentally and physically, he's feeling 100% on Saturday. Now, the rule set is EBIOT. So we'll be going over some EBIOT strategies this week just in case he ends up going into EBOT. And most of the time, you know, when you're looking at, you know, a field that deep where you got 50 matches, one or two matches will probably go to EBIOT. Hopefully not, but, you know, very few guys go through a whole tournament. I mean, it's like Gordon Ryan and Gary Tone and uh, really are the only people that ever made it through EBI all subs without going into EBIOT. So a lot of EBIOT talk and strategy work, making sure that the training he does is technical, but we're not going to go and, and have hard sparring rounds, you know, Thursday. It's making sure that he's getting there healthy, you know, and that's super important. Now we backstep, right? So that's this week. 
Well, the past three weeks, we've been changing. So Travis also fights MMA. He had an MMA fight. He was supposed to have an MMA fight a couple of weeks ago. It was a disaster and ended up falling. His opponent missed weight by like 20 pounds. It was a disaster. But so he was doing three-minute rounds. So amateur MMA is three-minute rounds. Well, these jujitsu matches are 10-minute rounds. So we had to change up his cardio. We've been doing longer rounds. We've been doing a little bit more running, trying to get that steady state. I'm trying to get his heart rate. It's MMA, it's a lot more explosive. And so we're doing a lot more Tabata work, a lot more just short explosive work. Well, now again, like I said, he, he's got these 10 minute matches coming up. We've been doing you know, a lot more 10 minute rounds, you know, working on, you know, kind of working towards a peak and during that 10 minutes. And we haven't been doing as much explosive work. We've been doing a lot more running. We've been doing a lot more body weight type stuff, just again, getting him um, ready for this jujitsu tournament. And so just little tweaks like that are, are really important leading up, you know, month out from an event, you're looking to make those changes then. But like, yeah, this week, if Travis's cardio, like last week, we did very, very, very hard cardio. And so this week, it's like, no, the work's done. You know, um, we'll probably do a medium cardio session Wednesday and that'll be it. Are you doing a lot of opponent study, film study and uh, strategy there? You can't for blue belts, right? There's just, it's very, very tough, especially with a tournament like this. But for instance, when Nakaya did Medusa this last time, or when she did the ADCC trials, there was a lot of, uh, you know, studying there. So Nakaya's first round matchup was against Aaron Johnson and Aaron Johnson, um, silver medalist at black belt worlds. Very, very, very talented. She's a, Yeah, EBI veteran and everything, right? She's very, very, very good. And so studied her a lot. We didn't know the matchup until that morning, but we had a couple of hours. Like once the brackets came out, you know, we'd already, I'd already done a lot of the work, especially of the main players, like all the people that, you know, I expected to do really well. So you're doing a lot of pre-work there then. Yes. Yeah. Especially with the major players. Now there's some, some people, um, so Nakaya's first opponent was supposed to be a blue belt. And I'd seen just two of her matches and I immediately, like her last match, the person she was supposed to face at ADCC in the first round before they switched the brackets, it was just somebody that I could tell like, okay, like Nakaya has got significant talent advantage, you know, her techniques is just much, much better. So, so like, if you see that, then you don't really study that opponent in my opinion, right? Just cause it's, it's Nakaya. I could just, I'm like, look, she could beat this girl in a number of different ways. So you're focusing mainly on the, again, the, the heavy hitters, you know, that top 16, who are the girls that are most likely to get to the quarterfinals, semifinals. And then when we saw the bracket, you know, she had Aaron Johnson and then she had Trinity Pond and then she would have faced Raquel Canuto. And those were three girls, you know, Trinity Pond, Nakaya's had already had a match with her. That was very, very close. And so, you know, we had a good game plan going in there. So the higher that what I'm trying to say is, I guess, the higher the level of competition, the more film work you're going to, more studying you're going to do. You know, if you're going to go face Gary Tonin, well, there's a million Gary Tonin matches out there. You can really study and see tendencies. But at blue belt level, most of these guys don't have a lot of footage out there. Or if they do, it's against very low level opponents. And so it makes them look like superstars. You know, it's hard to really get a good read at Mm. that level, like a blue belt level, just because of them not having a lot of matches out there. And also the talent they're going against you know, sometimes these guys, I mean, they'll look like, they'll look like Gordon Ryan because they're out there going against, uh, you know, they enter some Naga and they're going against a guy that's, you know, not very good. And and they just go out and sub them in 30 seconds. And so it's kind of hard to to game plan, you know, when when a lot of these guys, the the footage they're putting out there, blue belt is them just slaying everybody. So, yeah. (laughs) There's not a lot of information out there in terms of jujitsu coaching, like what you're doing. How did you navigate those waters attacking that and some assumptions those made that that may have not been correct uh, mistakes you've made and that have made you adjust? Yeah, I was really lucky to grow up. When I was uh, growing up, uh, soccer was my my main sport. And I had uh, some scholarship offers um, when I was in high school. And the travel team I was on was very high level. My junior year, we finished eighth in the country. And my coach had played professionally in England. He was very, very good. And so I, I was around a high level coach then, you know, from the age of 14 to 18, I was around very, very high level athletics. 
everybody on my team played in college. Most guys played D1. And again, the, the training sessions were very unique. So the difference between my high school training sessions and my club team training sessions, I mean, were night and day. Amateur coach at the high school level, professional coach. Like all this guy did was coach youth soccer players. And it, again, it was just night and day. So some of the lessons I took from that, you know, definitely helped me and prepared me for this transition. And I think I've always really, like, I've always really loved coaches. You know, I've always thought it would be so cool to be like a Bill Belichick or a Nick Saban. I've always loved the longevity of coaching and how you can take teams and you can you know, create strategies to help players reach their highest potential. And so something I was always thinking about, but I do credit a lot of like the years of 14 to 18, you know, seeing what high level coaching looks like. And that's the the biggest thing I would say to anybody if like you were considering it, right? Is first, the biggest mistake people make trying to get into coaching is they try to pick the guys that they coach. I see it all the time and guys complain like a purple belt will try and take a blue belt under their wing at the gym. And the blue belt doesn't want to, he doesn't want to learn from the purple belt. I have guys all the time at our gym, like complain, like, man, I'm trying to help so-and-so, but he just won't listen to him or he just won't, he doesn't want to be coached by you. Right. There are certain guys that don't want to be coached by me. They just don't like my voice. They don't like my style or whatever, you know? And so exactly that relationship. I mean, how many times we've seen in the pro levels, right? Like certain athletes just don't get along with certain coaches. Mm -hmm. It doesn't matter how amazing the coach is or how amazing the athlete doesn't mean it's always going to work out. And so the first thing is, is you have to navigate that, the personal relationship. You have to find people that truly want to learn from you and that want to be coached by you, which you have to get results, right? Like you, most of the time you have to take somebody like, look, I'm working with some good athletes right now, but I'm not working with Gilbert Burns. I'm not working with Gordon Ryan. I'm not working with, because I don't have a resume really. You know what mm-hmm. I'm saying? And sure. so if I wanted to just, hey, I want to work with the best of the best athletes. I want to work with the best black belts. Well, why should they come learn from me? Why should they come and trust me? You have to start out with blues, purple belts. Honestly, a lot of times you got to start with the white belt. And people have to see you get results with them before they will trust you with their own results. So you find that relationship. And then you again, you're going to have to start with people that are, again, blue, purple belt. But if you're like a you know, let's say you're a brown butt at your gym and you love jujitsu, but you don't really like competition, but you would love to help out the competitors. And you've got purple and brown belts competitors that are going out and you want to help them and you want to try and be the coach for them. Because, you know, the coach you don't necessarily have to be better than somebody to help them improve and to hold them accountable and to help create strategies for them. But those guys aren't going to listen to you because you have zero evidence of you helping somebody else get better. And a lot of times they're going to see you as a peer. So you've got to find people again, that see you at that role. You know, it's going to typically be somebody that you're a couple belts higher than, right. And then from there, you'll find more and more people are wanting to join your stable of athletes. Right. So there's a lot of guys right now that want to join what we're doing. You know, they want to jump into the sessions. They want to start doing the cardio work. They want to see, because they're seeing the results that Nakaya and Travis are having, and they want to be a part of that. That's what I would tell somebody, you know, like really like you have to follow that rule right there. Because if you try and just coach anybody, you know, or you just go, Hey, I'm going to start coaching this guy. Well, he might not like your voice. He might not want to be coached by you mm-hmm. and your feelings are going to get hurt. I just, I've seen it happen a bunch over the years and Um, It's happened to myself a couple of times, you know, just guys that even if I was better than them, they just, they didn't want to learn from me. They didn't want to, they saw me as a young kid still, you know, (laughs) and they they didn't want my advice on how I could help to get them better. That's a tough realization. And I appreciate your brutal honesty in that sometimes it will have to be a white belt that you're coaching. Oh, a hundred percent. And that's the way it works. But honestly, that is what's going. So I take AOJ, let's just take art of jujitsu. They started with youth, you know, they took kids. They just got their first world champion in Tynan Dolphros, their first Gi world champion, you know, but they've been open forever, you know, but they started in the kids ranks and now more and more, you know, they're moving up and a lot of the most talented kids, that's where you got to start. You can't just expect 
you know, like Atos where, you know, Keenan Cornelius and all these guys were jumping over. Yeah, sure. Honestly. And that's honestly not going to be as satisfying. Like to me, once Nakaya and once Travis become reach their ceiling um, or, you know, reach their potential and they start winning world championships or they make the UFC or whatever, it's going to be 10 times more satisfying because we did that groundwork from when they were white and blue belts. Instead of just like, okay, I, you know, I want anybody like right now could go and help Gilbert Burns, you know, or like stand in Gilbert's Burns corner and feel like a superstar because the dude's already there. He's already near mm-hmm. the top. Mm-hmm. Right. And so, yes, you're going to have to work hard. You're going to have to, it's going to take a few years before people start to see the fruits of your labor. Mm-hmm. It's going to take a few years because you're going to have to take a white belt to purple belt. But if you do, and people are like, man, you know, I saw what, what Matt did with that white belt, you know, that white belt, he came in, you know, he had a little bit of talent, but now all of a sudden he's winning all these tournaments at purple belt. Well, now they're going to want to be the next guy. They're going to want to, they're going to want to become your student. That's interesting that you bring up uh, AOJ and that kids program. It does seem like they're, and I think academies across the nation or internationally are starting to waken up to that early farming, sort of planting the seed and nurturing that. Can you talk about the explosion of talent now of the kids, you know, the youth versus like what we've seen historically and the, the gatekeepers now, so to speak, you know? I, I think uh, obviously we're seeing a youth movement. My favorite rappers right now are the Rutolos. I think probably Ty Rutolo and Mika Galvao are, I mean, they're probably the two best guys under 200 pounds. They're both incredible and both are still teenagers. But I tell people this all the time, like, I don't know. You know, I I don't think it matters when you start jujitsu. Like you can become world-class. You can become a champion. We've seen tons of guys do it, you know, from Eddie Bravo. He started when he was 26 years old. My instructor, Brandon, I mean, he started when he was 26 years old. Now he's, you know, he's one of the most popular dudes in jujitsu. So you can start when you're three and you can start when you're 20. There's so much that goes into it in straight line sports. Let's just say, you know, football is one of the best examples, right? How did you get to start on the football team? Well, you ran a race and whoever the three fastest kids were, they started as wide receiver or they started at cornerback and it had nothing to do with like how much they knew about football. It had nothing to do with any of that. Jiu-jitsu is so multifaceted that at any stage, somebody can get very, very good and can become a master. I mean, John Donahue, I think he started when he was 30. I mean, there's so many guys that you know, have shown that you can become a master starting at an advanced stage. Now, obviously, if you start when you're four or five, you know, like the Rutolos, then there's certain advantages to that, right? There's huge, huge (laughs) advantages to being a kid and growing up in the jujitsu culture. But I think a lot of people, especially a lot of older people are starting to feel like maybe it's like, oh, well, I waited too late to start or I'll Mm. never reach the talent. Like, no, I don't believe that. I I think you can start at any age. I think somebody could start at the age of 40. And if they have, they put in the mat hours and they put in this, you know, they use their brain and they're constantly thinking about it. And they're constantly trying to solve problems that you can still reach the, the greatest heights in the sport. It's funny listening because I was really introduced to you a lot by your commentating. People don't know there, you know, Matt, you're a fantastic commentator. And so I pictured you as this sort of laid back guy who just commentates. And then, you know, we fall deeper into the scaffold and then you start finding out what a competitor you were and are, the mindset that you had and uh, the expectations that you have of uh, people at the academy, different belt levels. And I'm like, wow, this guy really, he's pretty damn tough on what he expects. His expectations are really high. It seems to sort of reflect possibly the culture of uh, 10th Planet Decatur. You know, I, uh, it's funny, I'm very serious. Um, I, I treat this. I'm very businesslike. Um, and I've always been, I always try and hold a certain level of professionalism for myself. And whether that's, you know, hey, I'm coaching a white belt at a tournament to, you know, whatever it may be. And so for me, I always try and speak honestly. And one of the things I had to learn was how to tactfully give <laughs> criticism because I was one that, you know, I would look and I'd go, oh man, you know, like for myself. I had to learn to take out certain words, right? Because when I hear, you know, somebody was like, hey, you know, that technique you did right there, like that was really poor movement. For myself, that would kind of light a fire in me to really examine that movement and to get better at it. But I've learned over the years that, man, you could have really hurt somebody's feeling by saying that. Yeah. You, know, you could learn, hurt somebody's feeling by, <laughs> yeah, by, you know, just critiquing them in a way that was too harsh. And so, yeah, that, that's something that, you know, just communicating because I always want to communicate honestly. 
you know, with Nakaya the other day, she, you know, it's a movement that I specialize in is the anaconda choke. And Nakaya has been working on that a lot over the past six months. And I was watching her finishing mechanics during one of her rounds and it wasn't good. You know, she had flared elbows and her head positioning was off. And immediately after the round, you know, I, I called her over and I was like, Hey, you know, and she knew exactly. And that's, that's the thing, you know, you don't have to say, you give somebody a 10 minute lecture on how poor their anaconda, well, you know, finishing mechanics, or you just go, Hey, let, let's tighten up those finishing mechanics. And she knew exactly what I was talking about. You know, in the next round, she went out there and, and hit a really nice anaconda. And so I, I think a lot of times as a coach in the beginning, you want to give these speeches, you want to do these hoorah things, or you want to yell, you know, it's the movies, right? Where they mm. cuss their team out for five minutes and their team goes out and wins the championship. That's all dramatic, right? If you're doing your job right, and again, you've been communicating honestly and giving them honest feedback for a period of time, then it takes very subtle critiques like that. Just, hey, you're finishing mechanics. They were off that round. And mm -hmm. you'll see the next round that they're much sharper. And I think that's really important. But yeah, it's funny. You know, I, I'm uh, 32 years old and most of the guys here, you know, if they didn't know my age, just the way that I present myself, they'd be like, man, you know, we, we think you're like 40 years old. You know, they all think I'm an old man, even though <laughs> I'm still pretty young. Man. <laughs> nah, Serious well, old man. <laughs> yeah, I'm, I'm very laid back and personable off the mats. You know, I love, obviously, I mean, dude, I can commentate an event for six hours. You know, I love talking, <laughs> but uh, I can be very quiet. I'm very inquisitive when I'm on the mats. And so there is a, I think a more serious presence where Brandon's kind of the opposite. Brandon's always laughing, joking, you know, he, he's uh, we're very fire and ice in the sense that I'm business. Mm -hmm. When I'm there out there on the mat, it's all business where Brandon's much more lighthearted. He's the one cracking jokes or talking trash. Like I did. I don't, I'm very focused. <laughs> I'm uh, just tuned in to what's going on when I'm out there. So is this like your coaching style? Your Do you have core principles? Are these your core principles? My core principles as a coach is relationship first. And that doesn't mean that I'm not trying to get into my athletes' love lives. I'm not out like, no, no, no. Like When a relationship, it's me and their relationship. We set a goal. And how am I going to help them achieve that goal? Now, if their actions start to say that they don't want that goal. So if somebody came to me and said, hey, Matt, I want to make it to the UFC. Well, the first thing I would do is look at them and the body of work that they had already accomplished. Okay. So there's a huge difference in a brand new guy walking in day one. He goes, hey, me and my, my girlfriend were watching the UFC the other day and you know, I'm pretty athletic. I think I can do that. Well, I take zero credence in that guy. He does zero training habits. He has never trained in his life. He's never even fought in his life. So how does he know? Like he might do, I know people that are very talented that did one MMA fight, hated it, hated it. You know, they yeah. just didn't like the mindset. They didn't like, I mean, they don't like getting hit. I mean, that's me. I'm not trying to get hit. I'm training tons of MMA right now, but I hate mm -hmm. getting hit. I'm, yeah, I'm not trying to make it to the UFC. And so I'm always looking at the habits that they have and how we can improve upon those habits. And that's the, what I mean by kind of relationship is like, you know, Hey, I want to know, you know, you're supposed to be doing cardio this day. Like, did you do your cardio? Hey, are you, you know, you said you were going to start stretching 30, 30 minutes every other day. Are you doing that? You know, those are the type of things, but yeah, if it comes to like, Hey, you know, me and my girlfriend got in a fight, what should I do? Well, no, no, no. I'm not trying to like weird martial art cult and control your life. I'm just here. You know, me and you have this agreement that we're trying to reach this goal. And once your actions start showing that you don't want to reach that goal anymore, well, then we're going to, we're going to talk, you know, because I don't work with people that don't put forth the effort, right? So anyways, it's relationship first and, and developing a trust with them that they're going to do the work that's set out before them to reach that goal. And um, they trust me to develop a plan and then to develop small goals along the way to help them reach where they're trying to go. Now, after the relationships uh, there, the second thing is that honest honest feedback. Once an athlete, they get a compliment from me, they know they can believe it because I'm also there to tell them again when, Hey, you know, your finishing mechanics weren't right here, or mm, I think you could have pushed harder in this round, or, mm, you know, you missed cardio today. You missed it because you didn't want to get uncomfortable. You didn't want to push hard. So you have to have that kind of yin and yang of look, you're there to point out areas that don't hold to that standard of that goal that they set. But once they do good, like, and once they like start to make improvements and do it, you're the first one to see it. 
And you're the first one to give them confidence because I think a lot of people don't realize that the most important thing that a grappler can have is confidence. And if you take somebody's confidence away and you're always like talking, you know, like, oh, well, you're not very good. You're not, no, no, no. You want to give somebody true confidence. And the best way to do that is to help them get better. And as they get better to point out that they are getting better, like, hey, last month you, you had zero anaconda chokes, but just this week you've hit six anaconda chokes during chain. Like, oh man, you noticed that? Like, yeah, I noticed that. I'm your coach. You know, I'm, I recognize the, you know, the results that you're getting in the gym. And when you're getting those positive results, I mean, it's something to celebrate. And so, mm. yeah, it's that honest communication. And really, like I said, you're pointing out the times that, hey, you know, you're not holding that standard of the champion that you want to be one day. You miss cardio this day, or how come you only did three rounds today? You know, I want, I want five hard rounds. Okay, go back out there. Give me two more. Then as they develop, you know, you're constantly letting them know like, hey, you know, you're getting better. Your leg lock defense has gotten better. Your ability to whatever it may be, the skill that you're working on, you're the first one to, to be there, pat them on the back and, and, and celebrate their, their successes. Because when you get those successes during the gym, it's going to really lead to better results in competition. So, I mean, those are like the two big ones. And then I think the last thing is to, you know, hold them to the standard that they want to be held to. You're holding them to a standard. And the biggest thing is, is that you're not determining their value based on wins and losses as a human being, because it can get kind of robotic. You know, if you're just looking at the results of jujitsu and all of that, always important to remind people that you're more than just this, right? You've set this goal and we're working very hard towards it, but look, this doesn't determine who you are as a human being. You are awesome regardless if you win or lose. And look, if you lose three straight competitions, who cares? I'm still in your corner. I'm still going to be there. We're still going to continue to try and get the results that we want to be. Because people, they'll sometimes they'll like they'll lose and they'll be like, I'm a loser. Or I'm not very good. Like they'll start saying all these negative things, and it's like, no, sure. I'm like that's not. That's just not true. Hmm. Winning and losing in jujitsu doesn't determine your human value. And so that's something that I'm very passionate about. You know, sometimes I'll, I'll let the competitor know the week of. It's like, hey, regardless of what happens this week, I, I'm very proud of you very proud of of the work ethic and the discipline you've shown this camp and win or lose, I'm proud of you. And that always makes them feel that much, you know, that much more confident that, look, the result's not going to change our relationship. And I'm there in your corner, win or lose. And next week, look, you take a loss in 10 seconds, we'll get back to work Monday. It's no big, no big deal. We'll take that feedback and we'll improve next week. So let's say hypothetically, yeah. I'm interested in becoming a professional grappler or taking my jujitsu to the next level. When should I consider working with someone like yourself, like a coach? It's oh, a, a great question. It's a great question. So there's a path that I think athletes should follow. Well, first is creating a schedule and sticking to it. Nothing speaks louder than hard work. So if you're the guy and you show up or a guy or girl and you show up 30 minutes before class and you're drilling with your buddy or one of your training partners, the technique that your instructor showed yesterday, and you're one of the last ones off the mat, the instructor puts on eight rounds and you're there for the eighth round. That's the first step is just training hard, like setting that schedule and sticking to that schedule. The second is getting results in local competition. I try and tell the guys that uh, there's a few guys that I'm, are kind of on the cusp of, of really, you know, starting to get more attention from me and starting to get more private, you know, sessions and, and more feedback because they're just getting results in local competition. But I tell people like, go get results in local competition. You haven't won a Naga expert division. Well, you don't need a coach, right? Because most of the guys competing in Naga, they're amateur level grapplers. Just people who love to compete, but they're not training full time. They're not, you know, so anybody can go win a Naga. Now, look, some of those Nagas, you do get professional competitors. Guys or, or, or girls are looking to test out a new skill or they're looking to ramp up and get ready for a bigger event. And so you just never know. I mean, Ryan Hall might show up, you know, he's getting ready for ADCC. He might show up at your local Naga. And it's like, well, you know, you're a blue belt and you're hoping to win that expert division. Well, not today because Ryan Hall's in there. So go win on the local scene. Okay. After you start winning on the local scene, then you can start thinking about taking super fights. You can start thinking about jumping up to the regional scene. 
So I really don't think there's a lot of times like blue belts that they want to jump in like, Hey, there's this tournament in California. Should I enter? I'm like, dude, you haven't won a Naga. Like you don't need, I get it. Like it's going to be a little bit more prestigious and it'll be cool. And you'll feel cool posting on your Facebook or your Instagram that you're in this 16 or 32 man, you know, tournament, but you don't have local results. So why would you go to the national scene? There's no reason. Go win on the local scene, then the regional. So the next step would be finding those, hey, there's a 16-man blue belt tournament. Obviously, I'm in Alabama. So, hey, there's one in Georgia. What do you think? Like, yeah, dude, go jump in it. Go jump in it. See where you get. It's under. It's purple belt and under. $1,500. Well, yeah, go jump in it. And then once you're getting the results on the regional scene, then you start thinking about the, the national tournaments. And to me, you don't really need a coach until you're on that regional scene. After you've been shown that you're getting consistent results on the local scene, and then you start bumping up to the regional scene, that's when I think a coach can make a huge, huge, huge difference. And look, I mean, I tell our students all the time, come and ask me any question. You know, I'll help you out anytime. Hey, I want to you to look at this deep half sweep. What, what do you think? Look, I'm there. But coach, when we're talking about like coaching, watching you roll, taking notes on you, looking at the opponents you might face, like there's really no reason to do that you know, until you've proven that, okay, you know, you're better than all the guys on the local scene and you're ready for the next step up. And once you start getting to the regional scene, a lot of those guys are starting to train full-time and you need a coach. How do you scale this? Because, you know, you only like working, it sounds like, with a intimate amount, I would imagine, of clients. So is there a magic number for you where I'm at? And hey, that's I think I'm at my limit here in terms of the value I can provide. 100%. So I have four that I work with full-time, you know, that I'm in constant communication with constantly, um, you know, just the day-to-day stuff, right? Then there's probably, we'll just say 10, give or take a couple. So maybe it's 12, maybe it's eight that are right outside of that, that I'm consistently watching in the gym, that I'm helping with their development, you know, so I might watch them roll two rounds on a Tuesday night and I'm giving them feedback or I'm asking, you know, going up to them, hey, you know, got any questions or is anything I can help you with, you know, so I am more hands on with them, but not to the point where, you know, I'm in, in daily communication and, you know, we're planning like, Hey, this big tournament, it's like Travis has got this tournament down in Jacksonville. Like we're leaving Friday and we've got everything planned out. And so they're not quite there yet, but they're the kind of the next group. And then a couple of those guys will, again, they'll, they'll prove, they'll, they'll show that they're ready for that regional and getting closer to that national scene. And they'll just bump down into with the group of four. And so you got to have, you know, you got four, five, six, seven guys that you're, you know, girls that you're working with just on a day-to-day basis and a lot of preparation, a lot of thought process goes into what they're doing. And then you got a handful of, of guys and girls that you've got your finger on, but you don't know, you know, you're not into, or you're not doing their day-to-day development. You're not like creating plans for them, but you know, you still know their games, you are helping them progress, you're giving them any advice, you're showing them areas they can improve technically, you're watching. So like, I'll watch their competition footage. So those guys will like go to a local tournament, maybe they go to a Naga, a couple of guys just went to a Naga down in New Orleans. And I watched their footage and gave them feedback on that. So those are the things you're going to do to the, with that outside group is you're still, you know, you're watching your footage, their footage, and you're involved in their development. You're just not, we're not having like a, uh, a training camp for a uh, Naga in New Orleans. That's what mm-hmm. I'm trying to say. How are you keeping your uh, sword sharp, so to speak on um, coaching and developing your coaching and improving it? Um, I'm very result-based. I think it's one of the most beautiful aspects of jujitsu. I think a lot of people, especially with like social media, you got Facebook, you got Instagram, you got 80 million different news sources. Like you don't know it's true and not. One study will say this. So for instance, with um, even just ice, should you use ice on the injury or not? I mean, you could read 30 different reports from scientists online saying a bunch of different things. Like, yes, you should. Like I've read a report on science because I'm a big dork when it comes to just maximizing development, right? So I love human performance stuff. So I'm listening Mm -hmm. to podcasts. I like reading studies, all of that. And yeah, with ice, I mean, I've read and I've listened to people talk about how, look, ice is the best thing right after an injury, you should put ice right on it. And then I've heard other people say, no, that's not good because 
that right. stops the, it slows the blood circulation to the injury, which is bad. So you need to not use ice for the first anywhere from four to eight hours. And then you use ice and yada, yada, yada. You guys, you, you get what I'm saying? Where jujitsu and the mats, the results don't lie. Can you tap this person or not? And for me, the, the most important thing is staying sharp, I, I guess, as the coaching is first, you need to be, it's the communication during a role or during a role that your athletes in. So for instance, with Travis, he is getting ready for Jacksonville on Saturday. Well, if I haven't been watching his roles and I don't know what his game plan is going in and we, I haven't been communicating him with like giving him like instructions during his roles and we haven't talked about. Uh, so for instance, Travis doesn't like hands-on or me going like, Hey, Travis, with your right hand grab, he doesn't like instructions like that, but Nakaya mm-hmm. does. And so Nakaya loves like, you know, just like to play her like a video game, give her detailed instructions of what to do. Travis, he's, he likes a little bit more being a little bit more free. And so he wants you to, Hey, you know, uh, like Travis's last tournament, Hey, you got the back now, your body triangle secured. Let's just keep the position for 30 seconds. And then we'll start to look to isolate one of the hands so we can either trap it in a straight jacket, or we can get that hand out of the way to punch for a naked choke, but just do 30 seconds. He likes a little bit more like that. Just, hey, calm down. Like, relax. Hey, you're in a great position. You don't need to mm-hmm. rush things. And Nakaya is a little bit more direct. So staying sharp as a coach is just, that, that's what it is. You know You know the game plan, your, your athlete's coming in. So Saturday with Travis, I'm not going to be giving him directions like I would Nakaya, or I'm definitely not going to be, hey, Travis, uh, yeah. Let, let's uh, let's go in and look for leg locks. Like, hey, the leg, like the, the Ashigarami's right there. We're not going to look to do leg locks on Saturday. We're only going to defend if guys look to in our legs and, you know, we've been working leg lock defense. That's a big, big, has been a big part of his training the past couple of months. And so, but I've told him, I'm like, look, like he can leg lock, but I'm like, that's the only way any of these dudes are going to be is if you go for a leg lock and then you get counter leg locked. Mm-hmm. If somebody go there and beat you, they choke you or they arm bar you, then look, hats off to them. I don't think that's going to happen. But if they do, okay, hats off to them. But we're not going to go in there and like you enter a leg lock and you get 50-50 and you get counter heel hooked. So that's the type of thing I'm talking about as a coach. You're staying sharp by just knowing the game plan, sticking to the game plan and knowing the language that your competitor wants to hear and having practiced that leading up to the event. Two weeks out, you should start just being in their ear when they're rolling. There is no coaching school per se, right? That I know of for jujitsu. So, I mean, are you reading books on the topic or on mindset? And well, what are you that, doing that's there? the beautiful thing. Every athlete's different. I mean, just the difference between Nakai and Travis is, I mean, mm. they're just completely different. The, the train, the type of training they like to do is completely different. The way they roll, the way they, everything is different. And so there's not really a one size fits all. If you talk to any coaches or especially high level coaches, my uncle, he is a college football coach. He coached, um, he played college football at the University of West Virginia. And he was a coach for, he was a tight end coach for the University of Georgia. He coached four or five professional, like Benjamin Watson, who played like 14 years in the NFL and a bunch of guys. Um, so legit. So he's coached a lot of, yes, a lot of NFL athletes. And yeah, that's what he says. Like everybody's different. You know, some guys you've got to babysit. Some guys, uh, you know, you give them some space. Some guys, there's not one size fits all. Mm-hmm. All you're looking to do is maximize potential. So you have to find a strategy that is going to help you maximize potential. For me as a coach, it's like there are certain athletes that you just don't work well with. For me, Nakai and Travis are both laid back. You know, they're not trash talkers. They're not loud. They're not those are athletes. I don't know. Like when I see a Conor McGregor type, that's not an athlete I'm really interested in working with. Just the energy for me, it's not not the type of energy that I carry. And so, man, there's just so many, so many aspects to this that um, I think you'll find that you just learn something from you know every person you try and coach. Yeah. But I, I think uh, one of the big things, like people all the time were like, man, I went to a tournament, uh, I'm a purple belt, and I tried to coach my white belt teammate or my blue belt teammate. And I mean, they just didn't listen to me. I'm like, well, have you ever coached them in the gym? Well, no. Well, then why do you expect them to listen to you in a tournament when things are going 100 miles an hour? They're not used to hearing your voice in the gym. So what makes you think they're going to respond in a tournament scenario? You have to, if you want to be a coach, you have to do it in the gym. You've got to practice being a coach in the gym. That is crucial. 
they've got to hear your voice. They've got to have, I mean, yeah, but I hear that all the time. People will be like, man, I went there. I tried to help him. He just didn't listen to me. I'm like, well, have you ever coached him in the gym? No. Well, I mean, you just think he's all of a sudden going to start listening to you because, you know, you're yelling at him to do a rubber guard in the middle of a tournament. I mean, no, that's not the way it works. What are you doing with your jujitsu? Are you still developing that or what are you, are you still working on in that respect as well? Oh yeah. I mean, I'm training more than ever right now. Mm-hmm. I, I typically roll five days a week. I like to roll Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Friday, Saturday. So I'm rolling five days a week. I do sessions on Monday, Tuesday, Thursday, Friday. So some of the athletes, you know, they'll come in for an hour. It's depending on the goal set coming up, you know, with Travis, um, for instance, with Travis, the past couple of weeks, the sessions have been jujitsu focused with Nakaya. The main focus is leading up to this MMA fight. So it's been more pad work focused. So um, yeah, I'm always doing stuff, but the biggest thing is my cardio. Cause I've been doing cardio with all these MMA guys and, and girls, and I've been the one leading it and developing the plan. And so that's the thing It's like, I got to lead from the front. You know, I mm-hmm. can't, <laughs> I can't sit on the sideline and have people do the work that I created. So yeah, man, my, my cardio is definitely, I've never been in better shape. So if somebody's like, Hey, could you go compete right now? I'm like, yeah, I'm in the best shape I've ever been in. I have zero wow. plans in competing, but I am in the best shape I've ever been in. <laughs> nice. For sure. Matt, I'd be remiss if I didn't bring this up because I had a uh, Lindsay on recently. And uh, I know that you were her, she kept bringing up as you being like her strength coach to some extent and, uh, and her main training partner coming up. I personally have gained a lot from rolling with women and training with women. Can you talk about mm. your experience with uh, rolling with uh, women and what you've gotten out of it, what you've learned and, and how you approached it? Yeah. Lindsay is very, very, very special to me. When I was a purple belt, I tore my UCL arm bar defense. I was getting ready for the second ADCC trial. So they did the first one in West Virginia. And this is back when it was funny. This past one had 256. Well, that one had like 40 competitors. So it was in this gym in West Virginia. This was 2014. And I made it to the quarterfinals. I ended up losing to Enrico Coco who won it. And I was really fired up. Like I had a really good showing. And the next one was in Miami five months later. So I just ramped my training up. And in my mind, I was watching like the Meow Brothers and stuff. They weren't tapping to joint locks. And I was like, well, if I'm going to be at this level. So didn't tap to some arm bars and then my elbow exploded. So tore my UCL and I needed, would have needed Tommy John surgery if I was an overhead sports. If I was like throwing a baseball or like trying to get back to like throwing a hard fastball or Hmm. hitting a volleyball hard, I would have needed the Tommy John surgery. But being that, you know, don't do the sports. The doctor was like, it's going to take a year to heal. And honestly, like you can start training, but I mean, you're going to be very limited for the next three months, you know, definitely no arm bars, no nothing like that. And so I never really trained with women, you know, cause I, I was competing all the time, all over the country. I had done invitationals and I'd just done the ADCC trials and my plan and goal was to win ADCC. Well, like I said, I'd never trained with women, but with that, I had to take a big step back because I was so compromised. Like mm. for six months, I mean, my elbow was destroyed and I started training with Lindsay. Lindsay was a purple belt at the time as well. And at the time, you know, our gym, we trained like crazy people. You know, there was no such thing as slow roll. We just all butted heads. And so she didn't really have a lot of people she trusted to train with. And she was always worried about getting injured, especially rolling with guys like me who were rolling hard. And man, I mean, we started training at that point and the rest is history. You know, we've built a beautiful training relationship. And the thing about training with women is women are incredibly technical, very, very, very technical. And they can be incredible incredibly hard rounds. Like Lindsay's easily one of the hardest rounds I, I ever have. I mean, she's a phenomenal black belt, but if I go in, cause she's, I'm 170 right now, she's 135. So I'm 35 pounds heavier. And I'm also, you know, Lindsay's strong, but I'm a lot stronger. You know, we work out together. Uh, we do strength and conditioning together and we do it with all the athletes now. But um, if I go in there and I just grab Lindsay or I like snap her down real hard or something like that, well, then it just comes down to, you know, the physical side of things. You don't find that with women a lot of times. Like if you go in there with man strength that they kind of shell up and they lose confidence and then they're just playing to not get hurt. Mm-hmm. But if you go in there and you can flow with the woman or you can try and beat them going at their speed and their size, like especially their size, like you can go hard, but just not take out the heavy collar tie 
exercise. Take out the, I'm going to grab your wrist like super hard. And if you can really train the technical side of with them, I mean, you'll be blown away by how much better you get. I mean, I would say I do probably, probably do 50% of my training with women whether it's with Nakaya or Lindsay, we have a couple of other purple and brown belts here and it's saved my body. My body's never been healthier and my technique's never been better. And so I'm telling you, I'll go roll with a 225 pound purple belt guy. And technically the women are just so much better. Doesn't mean the guy's not tough. Yeah. The guy's super tough, but he's just, he's limited. And um, a lot of times I think the size limits technique typically the bigger they are, the fewer techniques that they're actually really good at because, because they get those techniques to work that much quicker. I mean, how many guys, I think everybody has a guy at their gym that's over 200 pounds, who's super strong, that isn't really good at a Kimura. That's all he's really got is a Kimura because that's mm-hmm. all he's ever needed. Where this woman who's 140 pounds, I mean, she can do a lot. She's very versatile. She's got arm bars. She can do leg lock. You know, you can do heel hook. She can pass standing. She can pass, like, they can just do so much more because they had to develop a much more diverse game because they don't get results as quick as the 225 pound male. So I'm a big proponent of training with women. I really think it's one of my secret weapons. I uh, technically, I feel like it's just been the best thing that ever happened to me. And yeah, I'm a big, big, big fan of guys and girls training together. As long as the guy can train in a way that now, I don't want you to just lay there and let the girl do whatever she wants. Like you should be trying to win, but just win with using the same amount of strength as you know they're using. On that note, Matt, thanks so much for your time. Again, can't thank you enough, man. Loved having you on the show. Oh, yeah. No, it was a pleasure being on the show. And yeah, if you guys um, ever have any questions or anything like that, I'm pretty much never on Facebook. So if you follow me on Instagram and just send me a message on Instagram, I'll happily answer. Um, I've got my own podcast, the, The Grappling Discourse. I've got over 300 episodes, planning on doing a thousand podcast episodes. But like I said, I've got over 300 episodes. It is fantastic. Uh, you cover so much. A lot of what we discussed today, you cover in depth on uh, the grappling discourse. I, I definitely highly suggest everyone listen to it. All right, everyone. We will see you guys next time. I appreciate it. I am your host, Adolfo Ferranda. All right. Take care, guys. See you next time.